It's now about six minutes after, so we will go ahead and get started. Um, today's lecture is um, what I call Constitution and Representation. And I think it proceeds from um, a question that we might ask at the very beginning, as most books do on this topic, on this subject, what is a city? Uh, it is a surprisingly difficult thing to actually define. Um, considering that we all know what a city is, we all know when we are in one, but it is surprisingly difficult to actually uh, define. So we will begin with that, recognizing that no definition, including my own, um, is totally satisfactory. Um, to begin, I think it's important to see what others have said. In your readings today by Spiro Kostov, a great architectural historian, architecture and urban historian, no longer with us, unfortunately. Uh, he taught for many years at the University of California at Berkeley and um, unfortunately passed away at an early age, actually, from lung cancer. Um, his definition, he offers um, in today's reading nine points, nine points of, um, of what a city is. And I don't, he goes into greater detail than we will go in here today, um, and you can read these when you download this, but there are a couple that I think are worth mentioning. One is uh, cities are places where a certain energized crowding of people takes place. There's always some discussion of density and crowding and so forth, but I find that to be terribly unsatisfactory. When I go to a Braves game, there seems to be a lot of energy. Um, there's a lot of uh, crowding, um, and it's certainly a lot of people. Uh, but Turner Field is not uh, a city. Uh, cities do come in clusters. There's always a kind of hierarchy, and these things distribute themselves in space. If you look at that um, medieval maps, for example, of cities in China or even today, uh, Georgia, for example, the southeastern United States, you will see larger cities like Atlanta and Charlotte and Birmingham and so forth. And there's a associated with it kind of in a ring are smaller cities uh, like Macon and Augusta and Columbus and so forth. And then between, let's say, Macon and Columbus, there are still smaller cities and so forth. Um, each of those cities, uh, whether it's Macon or Columbus or Atlanta, uh, is sort of an economic center for um, a lot of activity of people that are somehow associated uh, with that place. And these come in a kind of hierarchy and that is true, interestingly enough, when we go all the way back into the ancient world. Uh, in some cases, as in ancient Rome, these are actually sort of set into a kind of law uh, that has to do with the physical agricultural territory that was attached to a particular city. Um, cities are places that have some physical circumscription. Well, in the Middle Ages in Europe, you would have a wall, right? A wall around the city. It was pretty clear. You were either inside the wall or you were outside the wall. Um, you were either intramural or extramural, from the Latin mura, meaning wall, mural, paint on a wall. Um, intramural athletics means that uh, different clubs and groups at Georgia Tech play one another. Extramural means that we play Clemson, uh, or we play Wake Forest, or something on a Saturday, outside the wall. Um, but in the complexity of the contemporary city, a city like Atlanta, it is very difficult to sort of say where Atlanta begins and ends. When you come down Interstate uh, 85 in a car, 
Uh, there's a little sign on the side of the road, lost amongst many other signs on the side of the road, that says City of Atlanta. Otherwise, there's no clue that you are in or not in the City of Atlanta. Uh, so it's a little more ambiguous today than it was historically. Uh, cities are places favored by a source of income. They are really um, engines of, of uh, their economic engines, in other words. Um, income, trade, intensive agriculture, the possibility of surplus food, uh, physical resource, uh, you know, surplus food. You don't think about it. You go to Whole Foods, you go to Publix, and you buy your groceries. You don't go out and chase the chicken around in the yard uh, like my grandmother used to do. Number six, I think, is uh, absolutely critical. That is that cities are places that must rely on written records. Um, writing is a fairly recent human invention in its current forms, um, going back to about uh, 4,000 B.C. at the earliest. And um, they actually um, are have to do really probably, as we'll see, with um, the need to record trade, to record surplus food, uh, lists of things, a census, for example, how many people, how do we provide people in case of attack, right, who is eligible to serve in the army, that sort of thing. Written records become uh, really critical, and I think we don't see written records outside of cities. This is actually in the ancient world that I'm talking about. Cities are places that are intimately engaged with their countryside. I've already mentioned that, this agricultural territory normally associated uh, with a city. In the days before um, airplanes and trains and boats like we have today, um, most produce was like uh, milk, right? You're not going to ship milk in. You might ship strawberries or tomatoes in, let's say, from Peru, but you're not going to ship milk in, right, because it goes bad too soon. And so the, the agricultural products that are associated with the territory close to the city um, suggest that uh, prior to the modern world, there was always an agricultural territory that was attached to the city. And really, in a sense, they were sort of uh, inextricably linked economically. Uh, cities are places that are distinguished by some kind of monumental definition. Now, by monument, and we'll come to this in a moment, by monument, what we're really talking about here is memorial, memories. Uh, we are unique among the animals as far as I can tell. Uh, it's true that salmon go back to the place they were born to spawn. It's true that my dog knew how to get home when he was lost. Uh, but as far as I know, he did not know the name of his grandparents, right? Um, and he did not desire to have a headstone uh, when he passed away. Um, this, this, this human trait to enshrine for future generations the memory of something that we think is important in the present is very important. And we see all cities going all the way back to the earliest forms of human settlements being associated with this monument, monumental function. Now, in some cases, these monuments might be the embodiment of institutions. It might be public buildings, a religious building, a shrine, something else, right? The monument alone, however, does not make a city. If we go to Stonehenge in England, it's very old. It's about the same, roughly the same point in time as the pyramids in Egypt. We have no idea who the people were who built it. We do know that it took quite a bit of effort because the stones actually came from about 40 miles away in some cases. But there's no evidence. There's evidence of burial. 
There's evidence of some sort of ritual associated with it. There are a lot of theories about it, that it was a celestial clock, that it could predict eclipses, that it, it was sort of an astronomical calendar. But there was no city, no permanent settlement that yet found that was somehow associated with it. So the monument alone does not make a city. But cities do always embody a monumental function. And finally, it goes without saying that cities are places made up of buildings and people. And I think we only have one city planner um, in, in here this year. But uh, I've always been um, struck by when architects talk about cities, they're talking about the physical thing, right? And when planners talk about, city planners talk about cities, they're generally talking about people. And so there's a rhetorical question. It's like a chicken and egg. Which is more important, the people or the city? Well, hmm. You could say, well, obviously the people are more important. That's true. But then the physical part of the city, um, where would the people, how, do, how would they distribute themselves in space without falling all over one another, right? Without the boundaries that would separate me from my neighbor yet join us together in an overall collective structure. So a city is like, let's say, a high-rise building, right? Um, the floors and the, and the skin and the structure and the elevator shaft and the mechanical systems and the plumbing, like this building, are shared by everybody in it, right? Um, and you can't design or build uh, a building by accurately forecasting what floor the attorneys are going to move into five years from now or trying to regulate that somehow, right? So the, the physical part is often, in a sense, prior to the people. Now, I'm going to say that now, and we will come back to that later in the course because it's a little confusing, but it's, um, it's sort of significant, particularly when we get to Rome. So um, these are Kostov's nine points, and I find them useful and I find them important. Uh, he elaborates on them more in the assigned reading, but um, I find them unsatisfactory. It's too complicated, too complicated, right? It reminds me, you know, people, <laughs> I've never done this, I've been married 40 years, but um, people, I can imagine going on dating sites and say, you know, well, I want my mate to be uh, this kind of educator. I want her to have a Ph.D. in cultural anthropology from uh, Northwestern University. I want her to be able to cook. I want her, you know, whatever. You, you, you end up with this list of 14 things, guess what? You're not going to find anybody. <laughs> And I think there's some aspect of that here that, that, that it's a little too much to actually be uh, very useful. Um, he quotes Mumford, Lewis Mumford, and he quotes Lewis Worth. And so I thought it would be useful if we looked at Mumford and, and Worth um, to see what they said. And Mumford says, the city is a related collection of primary groups and purposive associations, the first like family and neighborhood and so on and so on and so forth. You can read this yourself. Um, again, quite complex in all of its sort of qualifying statements. I like Worth a little bit better. Worth was actually a sociologist, and interestingly enough, I think he comes down to these sort of four characteristics that a city must have. One is it must be permanent, or at least have the pretense toward permanence. When it's built, the idea is, is that it's going to be there for a very long time. Um, Unlike um, a lot of things that you say, well, you know, it has a 30-year economic life, or when you buy an automobile, you don't assume it's going to last forever. But when cities are built, the assumption is they're going to last for a very long time. 
Generally, they have large populations, yes. They have higher density than rural areas, yes. And there's a lot of social stratification and social heterogeneity, yes. That's fine. Um, but again, it doesn't help us very much in sort of then applying that toward a variety of cities across time and space to really understand uh, how we might differentiate these formally one from the other. So, um, but I like actually the uh, final sort of concluding statement that he makes. He says, all cities, at least those in our culture, and um, I think we could expand that actually globally, um, what they have in common, uh, that strikes um, a chord with me. I think it's very easy to, to sort of um, talk about difference. Uh, what separates us? We have different religions. We have different skin colors. Uh, we have male and female. We have different ages. There's all kinds of demographic things that are all about difference. But in the end, those kinds of demographics are really about finding out what people have in common. And it is looking for what is in common that actually, I think, leads me to my definition. I thought uh, after over almost four decades of teaching this course that I should probably obligate myself to come up with my own definition, and so here it is. That a city is the largest man-made artifact in human history. It is a political association, a political association manifests as a collective work of architecture built over time. A city contains two orders a political order, and an economic order. The political order is a framework of common elements owned collectively. I'll go into these in a moment. The economic order consists of individually owned parcels and their occupants within that collective framework. Okay? That is my definition of a city, and that is the one that I will apply in this course. Now, having said that, Let's tease this out a little bit more. So I've said that the city consists, for it to be a city, it must have two orders present. One is a political order, which you see on the left side of the screen, and the other is an economic order, which is on the right side of the screen. The political order, or the collective framework, I call the constitutional order, because it constitutes the city. All four of these elements must be present. and. As hard as I've tried, I cannot come up with a fifth one. There are only four. Uh, in and of themselves, they are meaningless. Uh, it is only how they arrange themselves and then are occupied later by the economic order, which I'm, for the sake of this course, calling representational. I don't like that term, but it's the only one I could come up with. Um, and so we're stuck with it until I can come up with something better, or if you have a better suggestion. Um, so let me go in, into this in some detail because I think it's very important and you might want to pay particular attention to this slide because it's likely to be on a test, okay? Um, the constitutional order, the political order, brings a collective structure into being. It is political in nature. It organizes society, it separates us from one another, and joins us in a collective structure. It is prior to individual building, and every city has a constitutional order. The constitutional order consists of four things. It consists of boundaries. The boundary is the fundamental tectonic unit of the city. It separates and joins discrete identities into a collective whole. Now, let me talk about boundaries for a minute. When I say boundaries, what comes to mind? Anybody? 
Hmm? Why is why is that a boundary? Why is I-75, I-75, 285 a boundary? All right? Huh? A, limit, a, physical limit. a physical limit. Well, that's how most people think of boundaries, and that would be the extramural boundary. And I think the interstate highways actually are in another category altogether, which we will tease out toward the end of the course. Um, it's a limit, except where it's, you're allowed to cross it, yes. But that's like the wall of a city, right, of an ancient city. Um, but there's another kind of boundary. What about boundaries intramural? Hmm? Hmm? County lines, that's some. How about the property line between me and my neighbor? Hmm? How about the wall between my living room and dining room? Which room does it belong to? Hmm? Anybody? What does it belong to? Depends on which side of the wall I'm on. So it constitutes one side and the other. And without that boundary, then I wouldn't have a living room and a dining room. Thus, it constitutes the rooms. But what does it belong to? What's the word we use? Shared. shared. And it's shared by a larger concept that we call what? The house. Right? And the parcel adjacent to my neighbor, who owns that property line? Who actually owns the property line? You do. The city, right? And if we're going to have setbacks and zoning requirements and other kinds of things, where do those regulations proceed from? The property lines, right? The property lines, seven feet off the property line, et cetera, et cetera. So the parcel itself at the parcel level and even down to a building like this where this room is constituted by that wall, the wall is a boundary. Now, you say, well, that's only if we talk about it as a limit, then that is limited, right? But what if we look at it etymologically? What does, what's embedded in the word boundary? Huh? An inside and an outside, that's a peculiar thing, right? But uh, what else? How about bind? How about your bind, bind? Could I see your notebook for a minute? Thank you. What do you call this? It's a binding, right? So the pages in the book are bound together, right? These are the ties that bind, right? My wedding ring, for example, right? The symbol that I'm married. So the word boundary has actually a double meaning. It separates and joins together at the same time. It separates and constitutes the living room and the dining room, but it joins them together in a larger structure that we call the house. And that is what I mean here, that the boundary is the fundamental tectonic unit of the city. Okay? It's constitutional, owned by the city owned by the political entity, the political association, the collective association. Let's take a high-rise condominium up here in Buckhead, right? You've got the 13th floor, say you've got the 12th floor and the 11th floor, right? And there's an apartment on each. Who owns the floor? The condominium association. You follow me? All right. 
So that is, that is critical in understanding how cities actually operate, particularly from the standpoint of designing a city, from an urban design standpoint. The street is the primary structural unit of the city. They allow us to communicate and to move about. They constitute the order within the collective whole. Streets are complex institutions with great social, political, and economic depth. And giving them over to a single function, as we have done in the last hundred years often, depletes them of their historical depth and their historical role. What I mean by that is since the advent of the automobile, we have actually come to a point where we tend to think of streets as something you just drive on, when the street is actually the public right-of-way. And it has many names, via, uh, meaning way, strata, meaning pavement, etc. They have many names. 16th Street's conceptually a very different thing from old Flintlock Trace or something in a suburb somewhere, right? have different associations that come to mind, but the public right-of-way is the street. And streets are complicated. Revolutions begin in streets often, right? So streets are the primary structural unit, like the column grid of a building. We might at some point in time change this room 40 years from now uh, to a cafeteria, but the one thing we're not going to move is what? Those two columns, right? because if we move those columns, the building collapses. Streets are like that. Once they are built, they tend to stay with us for a really, really long time. As we'll see an example, in Damascus, there's a street called Straight, which is about 4,000 years old. When you're in the old city of Jerusalem today, walking through the Souk Kanizait, you're actually walking down the Roman Cardo that was constructed in about 130 AD. Streets, once they are built, stay with us for a really long time, and they shape and form the nature of the city itself. They give form to it. Streets lead often, and they're all usually in a hierarchy, um, avenues, boulevards, other kinds of things. Um, we'll tease these out as we go along. We'll talk about how they developed at various points in time and their significance. But usually they lead to a public place of some sort. Um, and here I'm being deliberately sort of vague, maybe even a little too weak, places where the public gathers outside of the domestic environment where one is aware of your identity as a citizen. That's the important part. That's the qualifier. The public may gather in a shopping mall, which has all of the appearance of a street, but is it a street? Is it owned collectively? No, it has doors on either end. You shut it down at 10 o'clock at night. It's a fake street, an ersatz street, that is built inside of a warehouse, basically, right? In fact, at Lenox Square here in Atlanta, there's a little obelisk in the middle of the mall, and it says, there's a fountain or something, and it says, Town Square. And I've always wondered what town it was the square of, right? That's not the center of the city. It is not owned by the city, but it is developed in imitation of a regular street. Public places actually, um, in, again, with the advent of the automobile and in the complexities of the modern world in the 20th century, oftentimes um, these things actually have, um, have become quite ambiguous, and it's sort of difficult to sort out. Uh, but for now, let's just say that typically the public place is the place that is associated 
with the functions that um, remind us that we are citizens. Public parks, Fourth of July, Peachtree Road Race ends where? Piedmont Park, right, et cetera. That kind of thing. Um, as opposed to simply um, a clubhouse in a condominium building or a, a, a vacant plaza somewhere in front of a building. Normally, public places then uh, serve a variety of roles, but one of the things that they serve is that memorial function that I'm talking about, and that is that they become then the places, they become the repositories of memory, the repository of the monument. And again, there's a kind of confusion. Um, when you say a monument, most people think, well, it's really big thing because we tend to associate exaggerated size with being monumental. That means that it has taken on the characteristics of a monument, but if it does not stand for something else, then it does not play the role of a monument. The Coca-Cola building over here may be really big, and it has Coca-Cola written on top of it. Is it a monument? No, because it doesn't represent anything but itself. Um, monuments can become quite complex, and they might include public buildings. Um, if we take a well-known example in the United States, the Lincoln Memorial, uh, it was built um, in the 1930s after uh, Lincoln's reputation had been sort of rehabilitated in a number of ways. Uh, he was really ridiculed while he was president, even from people in the North. Um, and um, in fact, the Chicago newspaper called him a monkey, okay? Um, after he gave the Gettysburg Address. Uh, actually, the reporter referred to him as a monkey, okay? Uh, well, we built a Lincoln Memorial, and um, Lincoln's not buried in there, but what does it represent, symbolically? Anybody? Some concept of justice, of unification? Count the number of columns. It's the number of states in the old Confederacy and the Union, right? Uh, the unification of the nation. And what does it face? The public building, which is the embodiment of the legislative branch of government with its dome, right, at either end of a long street we call the mall. And Martin Luther King appropriated that in 1963 to give his very famous speech, right? So these kinds of public spaces have the potential within which there is a symbolic function of remembrance that stands, in this case, symbolically for justice, that we, in fact, um, can transform ourselves in light of that concept of justice. Um, the courthouse square, the, the capital, these all are forms of that. And in the ancient world, they might contain a temple. They might contain another kind of a public building. They might contain the house of the king. They might contain something which is intended to ensure the welfare of the community as a whole. That's the intent, okay? And the purpose of the monument is to obligate future generations to remember something that the builder of the monument believes to be important. So how long is a monument supposed to last? Forever. That's the intent. Well, on the other side of the coin, we have then the economic order. Uh, this order animates the constitutional frame and gives it meaning. 
The representational order is economic in nature. The representational order changes more rapidly over time than the constitutional order. Let's go back to my ersatz street in a warehouse at Lenox Square, and let's think about over time, trust me, when you're my age, you'll have seen this change enough, where the cookie store changes place, with the tie store changes place, with the furniture store, things come and go out of business, right, along the street. Um, but what doesn't change at Lenox Square? The column grid, the leasing depth, et cetera, right? You can buy shops side to side, but you cannot encroach on the collective space in the center, right? And that is an analogy, perhaps, to how a city operates. Now, the economic order, then, actually fleshes out this political framework, this constitutional framework. And it consists of houses, all types, including farms and industrial production, all part of what I would call, in the largest sense, the domestic realm, and markets, commercial office and institutional buildings uh, that are not associated necessarily with the constitutional frame. The vast majority of architectural production falls within the category on the right. Uh, individual acts of building over time animate and give meaning to a large or small degree the nature of this political framework. This is more or less permanent over here, and this is more or less changeable over here, over time. West Peachtree Street, Fifth Street, come back to that in a minute. It's on this corner right here. I remember when, in my lifetime, when that block right there was John Smith Chevrolet. That was a Chevrolet dealership. And this block was actually a series of houses. And there was one on this corner about where we were standing where I got my stereo, my first stereo repaired. It then became a parking lot, right? There was a nightclub over here called Cafe Erewhon, right? That changed. Georgia Tech bought it. But what didn't change? The public right-of-way, right? So these various uses were plugged in to this political frame. And as they come and as they go, they animate the boundaries in significant ways, and they give the city meaning. The occupants, the people, the uses give it meaning. But the framework is prior to individual habitation. In the United States today, the first three of these are controlled by subdivision regulations. That is this. The monument, by its nature, is representational. It stands for something else. But once it is constructed, it then flips into this category and becomes a permanent part of this constitutional political order. These are controlled by subdivision regulations. The economic order is controlled by zoning ordinances, at least since 1926. And we will discuss that later on in the course. Now let me pause for a moment before I move on and we'll look at how these distribute in space. Uh, I mentioned West Peachtree and Fifth Street. Um, we might also ask the question while we're sort of pondering these big issues, where does that come from? Fifth Street. Where does that come from? West Peachtree, Peachtree Street. Where does the concept of naming streets after trees come from? Well, I'm going to tell you in a minute. But I want to use that to make a point. And the point is, is that the point of view of this course is from this intersection looking backwards to ask ourselves the question, how did we arrive here? 
So there are lots of great cities in the world, Stockholm, Moscow, um, Santiago, Chile. Um, keep going. I mean, you can name them. Lyon, right? We're not going to talk about those cities because I have to edit this some way. And the filter that I have applied is really asking the question, how do we come to a point where we have an intersection called West Peach Street and Fifth, right? And then why does Fifth Street jog in this uncomfortable way right here? That's an interesting question. Um, and I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from Philadelphia. William Penn, who, um, who actually thought that if he could create an indexical order, he could create the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's what it means. And uh, therefore, it would erase all the sort of medieval social hierarchies. Where do you live? Well, I live at Holyrood Palace which would indicate immediately I'm important because I'm associated with a bishop, right? You follow me? If I live at 99 8th Street, what does that signify? That I'm just next door to 98 8th Street. Okay, it's an indexical system. So the streets that were running between the rivers were named after trees, locusts, and so forth, and after functions, market, broad, physical descriptor, um, streets then running parallel to the rivers as they move away, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, all the way up to 30th Street, right? So you run out and you hit water again. So in the United States, uh, Philadelphia really exerted a profound influence over cities in the 19th century all across the country. And so you have a lot of these streets that are indexed like that. So starting with North Avenue, which was the street just outside the city limits when Atlanta got started, the furthest street north, North Avenue. What's the next street? Ponce, well, it was a highway. It was already named. So what's the first third? Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. You keep on going up to about 28th Street. And then we stopped. When was the last time we built a street that was numbered? Like the streets of Manhattan, or the streets of Philadelphia, or the streets of Omaha, or the streets of Gainesville, Florida, for example, okay? Um, so it was William Penn. Where did William Penn get his ideas? He's a Quaker, pacifist, a lawyer, very well educated, traveled in very important circles in London in the late 17th century. What was he reading? He was reading Filarete. He was reading these texts that were circulating among uh, the sort of intelligentsia of the, of the West End clubs and the legal societies in London at the time. Uh, who wrote those? Italian Renaissance architects. Well, where were they taking their inspiration from? Well, a misunderstanding of the world that was all under their feet, the old Roman world. And where did they take theirs from? Well, it was part of their religion, etc. So as important as, um, I don't know, Moscow might be on the global scene, uh, by traveling through Moscow, we don't get to 5th and West Peachtree. You follow what I'm saying? So the filter that I have applied here is that sort of looking at that back and pulling it back forward through time. And I'll use examples that will show things around the world, but um, in cities in Africa and Arabia and so forth, but I want to say the perspective of this course is related to this question, this rhetorical device, which is where does 5th and West Peach Street come from? Now, if we take this constitutional frame and distribute it in space, 
and uh, it doesn't have to be a rectangle, uh, we see that we can map this out. So that before there is a mine and a yours and a his and a hers and theirs, there has to be then something that differentiates undifferentiated territory, subdivides it into parcels. And that forms that collective structure. And there are those four elements mapped. And I will even argue on very shaky terms, I can't support this for sure, but I believe, <laughs> that's all I can say, is that this is really the beginning of human consciousness in the modern sense. That once we actually are able to say this is mine, this is yours, what this line does is it inscribes uh, a kind of ethical behavior um, of how I treat my neighbor in his or her absence. Follow me? J.B. Jackson, my teacher, said that boundaries were what made farmers out of wanderers, neighbors out of farmers, and citizens out of neighbors. I actually think that's true. Now, I suppose, the second one, streets, that if Adam was in paradise, he didn't need a street. But once he was expelled from paradise and had a neighbor, you needed a street because all of a sudden you have a shared world between you, right, and among you. The street is the collective space. It is ours. And then the public space where the public gathers, normally containing some really important thing that ensures the welfare of the community as a whole. So we can map these four elements that we see here in space, and they come out looking something like that. And then the sort of secondary point that I want to come to, because this is something architects in particular, a lot of architects in here, have great difficulty with, is understanding that this, the street itself, this collective frame, this political frame, is in fact a building every bit as much as that or this is a building, right? And that there are plenty of places in the world where this is actually a party wall, right? And the private part of the house, the outside of the house, is, of course, a donut in the middle. We'll see a lot of that later on. It doesn't have to be rectangular. In fact, we can take a portion of Atlanta up Peachtree and 15th, and we can map that if it's uh, A, it's part of the uh, constitutional order. If it is B, it is part of the economic or representational order. And then we can see the numbers, boundaries, streets, public gathering places, and so forth. This is actually my neighborhood. This is Ansley Park. And there we see Wynn Park. And there we actually see the sort of publicly owned things. There are two memorials, although the one at the top at Pershing Point, which is a World War I memorial, is so covered up with vegetation that you can't even see it is unfortunate. Um, so they do not have to be, they can be irregularly shaped. They do not, in fact, have to be rectangles, although rectangles are particularly useful. Unless you sleep on a round bed, rectangles <laughs> sit on a round sofa, uh, drive a round car. Right? Rectangles tend to be fairly useful forms for us. Now, if we go through very quickly and looking at how then these constitutional elements arrange themselves in space, uh, we don't have to go very far. We can look at Atlanta, a, a sort of accidental city that we'll come to at the very end to talk about how it in fact developed. We'll look at the first map of Atlanta, 1853, very new city, very recent city. 
And we can see then how these streets and how these parcels, this constitutional frame, no real public space. The important thing is the rail depot that we see here, and then the sort of industrial part, which had a spring associated with, with it, which is why this is called Spring Street, by the way, because it led to the spring, because you had rail cars here coming from Chicago, going to Mobile, and from here going to Savannah and Augusta, and you had to tie all of this together somehow in a land lottery then that each individual owner in the lottery could subdivide theirs any way they saw fit. Um, despite the fact that this was never had any kind of artistic intent, uh, in fact, the person who laid it out, Stephen Long, was offered land lot as payment. He said, no, I think it's good for a tavern and a blacksmith shop and not much else. Okay, that was it. It's now a city of six million people. Um, so, look at how that laid down in the crudest possible way influenced the shape of the city over time, right? Astonishing. When I retired from Georgia Tech full-time three years ago, I was cleaning out my office, had a lot of material, and I found this in the back of a file drawer. This was a set of aerial photographs taken the year I started teaching at Georgia Tech. 1977, 76, 77. Um, this is actually Alpharetta. This is actually going up. That's Georgia 400, which has just been constructed. Uh, the photograph stops right here. This is contemporary off Google Earth. Again, if we look at this, what we see is the remarkable growth that this has experienced. And we can sort of deconstruct this landscape to look then at the streets or roads, as the case may be. We can then look at the public spaces, which in this case are regulated wetlands. We can then superimpose the roads, primary and secondary, back onto that, the arterials and the collectors, and we get this pattern. So again, um, these elements are independent of form, but form ultimately has to do with our intent and all the host of things, in this case, a ton of regulations um, that actually lead to this form. So what I want you to realize is that when downtown, when those was built, there were no regulations whatsoever, none. Right? You just subdivided it the way you saw fit. This is probably the most heavily planned environment that I can think of. Everything built here has been subject to some form of regulation. If we look at these elements here, for example, in southern Sudan at the city of Juba, we see the similar structure, in this case rectangles. We see important buildings, a school, uh, we might even see a church. Southern Sudan is Christian. Northern Sudan is Muslim. If we go to Buenos Aires in Argentina, we see the public gathering place. We see blocks, individual parcels that are visible here in terms of the individual buildings. Train station coming into the center of all of that. Kabul in Afghanistan. Again, the mosque is a kind of public building, a monument of sorts. The marketplace that we see up here, another mosque that we see there, and then individual parcels and streets, our constitutional frame. Even if we go to the favelas of Sao Paulo, or in this case, Rio de Janeiro, the, the most grinding poverty on the planet, just about, what we see is, in fact, this same structure. Even though this is subject to just Make do. Yes, in the back. Question. That 
That is an excellent question and one that you should try to keep in the forefront of your mind. Did everybody hear that? Could you say that loudly? I'll repeat it. If there were no regulations in downtown when it was being developed, why does it seem more systematic than Alpharetta does? That is an excellent question. That's the question we have to ask. And I hope by the end of this semester, if I've done my job properly, you will have some understanding of that. I can't possibly explain it in the next five minutes. So keep, those, keep that question in the forefront of your mind because that is the kernel of the question of this course and why as architects, as planners, as engineers, as citizens, it is necessary that we ask ourselves these questions, right? Um, the favelas here, this is what they look like in fact. This is in Sao Paulo. Um, just briefly, um, I, I want to mention in the last, in the closing three minutes here, uh, when I talk to my colleagues in city planning, they all want mixed use. When I go to the Congress of New Urbanism, they talk about mixed use communities. We all want mixed use communities. Uh, when I teach in the real estate development course here that's taught in this college that we're in now, talk about mixed use doesn't work. We need this, that, and the other, right? Well, when I get up in a hot air balloon, if I'm high enough, everything is mixed use, right? So we're really not talking about mixed use. What we're really talking about is scale. And scale is always related to the human body, right? To the human body. How long does it take me to walk? How tall is this room? Always in relation to the human body. That is scale, all right? So if we look then at the Spanish colonial settlement of St. Augustine, Florida, and uh, a very early shopping mall in San Francisco, the Stone Town, and we look at Georgia Tech, they're all at the same scale here. That gives you a sense of the size of things. If we look here then at Georgia Tech in the small little photograph that we see here, right, that's one square mile, and this is that area that we just saw. This is Alpharetta, this is Georgia 400, okay? Um, huge blocks, enormous blocks. So if we look at Rome, for example, and we look at uh, suburban Atlanta from the same elevation at the same scale, uh, we have much greater density in Rome. Uh, the white line that you see is one kilometer. This is the panhandle of San Francisco. But keep in mind, this is also San Francisco, right? It's not, it's not cultural in the sense that American cities look like this and European cities look like that and Chinese cities look like that, right? They change over time. That's the point I'm coming to. That's San Francisco. That is San Francisco. That is Rome. That is Rome. Same scale. That is Seoul, Korea. That is Seoul, Korea. That is where you are right now. That's Fifth Street at West Peachtree. We're actually in this building somewhere. I don't know. You, you can find it. I'm too close to the screen. That is also Atlanta. And uh, we probably ought to end this here, and we'll come back and talk about uh, some of these measures on Wednesday. If you have any questions at any point, Please raise your hand. Uh, I will do my best to answer. I appreciate that question. It's a great question. If you have any other questions, please see me after class. Okay? And who, who was here that said they wanted me to wear the... 
Had a hearing problem? Can I see you? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. No, it's all on the PowerPoint. No, it's on the previous one. No, no, no. It's all on the PowerPoint. I'll put them up there again, but it's all on the PowerPoint. Okay.